0: Hello, my name is Sravya Balasa, and you're listening to Girl Code. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Girl Code. So excited to have you guys here for our second episode. Before I introduce this week's guest, I just wanted to say a big, big thank you to everyone who showed an incredible and overwhelming amount of support on the last episode. I was truly, truly, really excited to see how many people wanted to hear what me and my guests had to say on topics that are not really discussed that frequently in the tech industry, such as imposter syndrome and mental health, diversity. Those are all things that we know exist, but things that we truly need to talk about more. And I'm just really excited that people want to hear about it. So, I hope you stay tuned for the next few episodes and just continue to be on this journey with me. So going off of that, this week's guest is Shannon Ellis, who is an assistant teaching professor in the cognitive science department at UC San Diego. I actually had her as my professor this past quarter, I think, yeah, fall quarter of 2020 at UCSD. For COGS 108, which is data science in practice. And one thing that really stood out to me about Professor Ellis was that she really cares about her students and you can really tell in the way that she holds herself in class, the way that she lectures, the surveys that she puts out. And the students, me and others included, truly feel as though we wanna put in effort for a class, for an educator who puts in an equal amount of effort into us as students. So I really wanted to interview Professor Ellis for this podcast because I wanted to hear her insights about what it's like being an educator and having so much empathy for your students and really trying to understand who they are as people and besides that her journey into tech is another really interesting one as she didn't really start out as a computer science major data science major which data science is a fairly new major actually but rather in biology and then used her domain knowledge to transform that interest into one where tech became her main focus as well as education so i really hope you get out of this podcast just another avenue of what you can really do with technology and what it's like being a professor, an educator, and a researcher. So I hope you enjoy this episode and I'll talk to you in the next one. So again, yeah, thank you so much for being on our podcast, Girl Code. Very excited to have you here.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and glad I get to chat with y'all.
0: Awesome. So I guess today we're going to talk a little bit about your journey in tech, what got you here today as a professor, an educator, and a researcher, and a little bit about all of that. So I guess we can just get started with the first question. So how exactly did you become introduced to the world of technology and where does that journey really begin for you?
1: Yeah, I guess mine is probably kind of circuitous. Um, So I've told this story a handful of times in that like nobody ever suggested I should learn to code at any point in my life. So until, until, until my end of my undergraduate studies. So I went to a large high school that had uh, APCS and I had never considered taking it, nobody suggested it. I was wrongly under the impression that the only reason you would learn to program is if you wanted to do video game development. I didn't like video games. I wasn't good at video games. It just wasn't an interest of mine. Um, And so I was like, oh, why would I learn to code? And okay, that now sounds like ancient history because it's so obvious today in how much coding can help. But I went through my undergraduate studies and I was a biology major and a Spanish major. And I was doing research and I spent years, literal years collecting data and doing experiments. And at the end, it, I was doing these things called microarray experiments. Um, the details don't matter, but at the end, you scan a little glass chip and things fluores- fluoresce and that fluorescence data becomes your data. And so you scan this chip after spending months doing these experiments and I got these data. And then the way we analyzed these data was by putting them through this piece of software and it like spit out the answers. And I asked my professor at the time, I was a senior in college, and I was like, whoa, like, I spent months, what just happened when I clicked that button? Like, what did it do with my data? How do I know it was right? And he said to me, um, you know, if you weren't if you were graduating, I would teach you Python. And I like made a mental note, and I was like, well, go Google what Python is, because I didn't know. Um, and this was my senior year of college, and so I Googled, and I was like, oh, Python's a programming language. This is something my... Um, biochemistry professor knows, and maybe something I should know in the future. So as I started to look for graduate schools, um, I knew I wanted to learn to program. I knew that I wanted to pursue something computational, but I also knew that I had no skills. So I had to make sure I went to a program where somebody would let me in their lab when I told them I didn't know how to code. And so I did not write my first line of code until my first year of graduate school.
0: That's really interesting that you mentioned that because I have a couple of friends who are now in the bioinformatics program at UCSD, and it's really interesting to see how coding is on its own, just, you know, code, but it's when you get to apply it to something that's very domain specific that you get to really see what magic you can kind of create with it. And I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that there's this biology thing you're really interested in, and coding could kind of be the solution for that.
1: Yeah, and that was certainly the way I—it was my entrance to it. I was analyzing large genomic data sets. I was working with tons and tons of data where uh, code was needed, and if I wanted my work to be reproducible, I needed to learn to code. Um, and I learned some really bad habits by teaching myself, um, and I've been working to get out of those for years. So yeah, it was certainly by means of biology.
0: Definitely. So now you said you're going to grad school. So can you talk us through a little bit about? why you chose to go into academia and what your route through grad school was?
1: Sure, so I, even applying to graduate school, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. Um, And I ended up doing a PhD program in human genetics. In that I joined a lab where I learned how to program. I first learned to program in Perl. I then learned R, Python didn't come till later. Um, And I, loved it. I loved doing computational research. I also enjoyed bench work. So like doing actual experiments and collecting the data myself. Um, And it was at the end of my PhD, when I was trying to decide on a postdoc, I knew I really enjoyed research. And I kind of had to make a decision at that point. Do I want to continue down the biology route where I continue to do experiments and continue to analyze data, but I become very niche and I study one thing and one thing pretty deeply, or did I want to work in a department and in a lab where things were a little more varied and I would have a lot of variety in the data I analyzed, but I wouldn't have that like one thing I focused on. And so I chose the latter. I worked with my postdoc mentor, Jeff Leak. During that, he gave me tons of flexibility. Um, I was working with a large, large, large data set and uh, making some predictions on data there so that they were more usable to other biologists. And that project was taking about a year. At the end of that project, um, I marched into Jeff's office. And by marched, I mean, I like cowered because I was scared to tell him. And he had been bugging me in a good way as a good mentor would like, what are your next steps? What do you want to do after your postdoc? You know, what is it that you want? How can I help you get there? And I hadn't decided. And I had in my head for years and years and years, that stupid phrase, um, those who can't do teach. And I had always loved teaching. I was a tutor as an undergraduate. All of my students that I tutored were like, you should teach. And I was like, no, I want to do research. And then in my postdoc, chatting with Jeff, I realized that I wanted to teach. Um, And so I told him that. And he was like, why are we even scared to tell you, tell me like, let's get you some teaching experience. And I was like, oh, by the way, I applied to a teaching position this summer. It's a three week position. If I get it, can I go? And he was like, yeah, sure, of course. After that, I continued to teach undergraduates at Hopkins. Um, and so that's how I really decided to stay in academia. I knew I wanted to go an education route. I knew I loved teaching. It's not that I ever hated research. I just didn't have this like dying, burning passion about this thing I wanted to study. So, and I did love teaching. So I went the education route and that's skipping a few steps, but how I ended up here.
0: I've actually heard that from a couple of people before when they're trying to figure out what to do. It's... If they don't find something that they're passionate about, that they're doing research for, the entire experience kind of is a little bit dull just because you're not, it's know you're driving force, but for example, if education is your driving force, like that is definitely what you should go for,
1: I think. Yeah, and the, the weird thing about academia and research positions is when you apply for the job, you have to pitch what your like research trajectory is, and it has to be a cohesive story. And I didn't have a cohesive story. I was like, well, I like doing genetic analysis. I like doing research on education. I like collaborating with others and helping them analyze their data. And in my position now, I get to do that. And I don't have to tell anybody I have this like singularly focused research program because I don't.
0: So coming out of your postdoc, then what did you want to teach in? Like, What was your education focus? Kind of speaking off what you're just saying there.
1: My mentor at the time, Jeff, um, he is a biostatistician by training. I'm a geneticist by training who was doing data science education at the time. And data science, like nobody had data science degrees at this time. It wasn't a thing, but lots of people were doing data science became a term. It became buzzwordy. It became a thing that everybody wanted to learn. And so I, the first teaching job I had, I was teaching genetics. The second Few classes, I was teaching data science slash data analysis, but two public health majors. So these were largely people who wanted to go on to become, um, physicians. And so I was still largely within this biology sphere. And so I enjoyed teaching technical topics. I wanted to continue teaching that. And I looked, I looked for biology jobs where I could teach more bioinformatics. I looked for statistics jobs where I could teach more data science. Um, it all had this thread of technical topics and the specific domain didn't matter a ton to me. But when I was talking to Jeff, he was like, you should apply to stats departments or you should apply to CS departments. And my argument was, why would a CS department hire me? I don't have a CS degree. Why would a statistics department hire me? I'm not a statistician. So I was this weird mix of a geneticist who went to a biostatistics department who was in data science education, but doesn't have a degree in that. And so, I applied to a handful of different positions, but I interviewed at mostly like data science, places where they were trying to build data science education up or a place like cognitive science where I, it is full of a bunch of people with different degrees that all somehow fit together um, into what I think is a unique and interesting department with lots of interesting people. But you know, I could sell it that it's like, hey, I, yeah, I'm a geneticist, but I'm also a data scientist and that's fine. Yeah, I think it's
0: really interesting that you mentioned how kind of cognitive science is a very interdisciplinary major when you really think about it. And your journey was extremely interdisciplinary to kind of end up where you did.
1: Yeah, and I like that aspect of my career. Like, I like that I have these varied interests, but it is a weird and hard sell in academia, where you're typically very focused on your topic, and that's what you do. And so I knew I wasn't giving myself necessarily the easiest or broadest path. Like I wasn't making myself sellable or marketable to lots of people, but I was lucky in that data science is a thing. So there were data science jobs um, when I was applying.
0: So was data science starting to first become something kind of when you were starting out your career in academia? Is that, that's what it kind of sounds like?
1: Yeah. So I would say data science started to become a thing in 2007, um, 2007, 2008. I graduated from my undergrad in 2010. So two years after it became a thing, I didn't hear the term data science until I was a graduate student. And it certainly wasn't like gaining traction as a field until that time.
0: Okay, makes sense. So I guess you were teaching for a while, and then eventually you ended up here at UCSD. So can you talk us through how you got this position at UCSD?
1: Yeah, and I tell students this in one of my classes that even when I was applying to this position, I wasn't, at that point, constant theme, singularly focused on, I didn't know exactly what I wanted. So I didn't mention this before, but I went to a small liberal arts college. I think, I don't think I mentioned it. And So that was in my brain. I was like, okay, I don't, and I had gone to a medical school for my graduate degree. In graduate school, my PI, my boss, he taught for literally two hours a year. And so what I knew of teaching focused positions were positions at small liberal arts colleges. So I started to apply there and I interviewed at a few and I would ask them like, how many people are you graduating each year? And they would be like, oh, you know, 13 or 18. And I was like, oh yeah, they're going to be fine without me. And so like my impact, I was like, you know, I don't think, I don't think that's the right fit for me. At the same time, I was applying to mid-sized education startups. So there was an education focus there um, at like more tech companies and ultimately decided that wasn't a good fit. That's a story for another time. Um, And then also Data science positions within local governments, I had applied to because there was still an education component there because you're always um, educating back to the local city government. And like it's obvious to anybody at UC San Diego, but like I forgot because I'm from Pennsylvania where we have a bajillion, the actual number of small liberal arts colleges, that like state schools are a thing. And state schools are where people do lots of teaching and you have lots of different students of lots of different backgrounds and that's when i started applying to this position so it was kind of after i had started my application process my boss came in he had seen the position at uc san diego because he knew what types of positions i was looking for i had quite literally looked at the um ad every day and i had convinced myself that i shouldn't apply And I can explain at some point, if you want, why I thought I shouldn't apply. And he convinced me I should. And I did. And so, and I I thought it was a perfect position for me, except I thought they wouldn't hire me. So I almost didn't apply. And then I did. And then I interviewed and it was a great fit. And now I'm here.
0: Amazing. Well, if you didn't apply, I wouldn't have had you as my professor. So here we are.
1: (laughs) Um I'm so glad that I ended up here. I got to have you as a student.
0: (laughs) So I think it's a really good point that you made about I wasn't going to apply for this. And I didn't think it was the right fit, or I didn't think I was going to get it. Because I think that's something a lot of students deal with at school. And a lot of professionals deal with, actually. But we always feel like they never do. I look up to people who are CEOs of major companies. And they'll tell me, you know what? A couple of years ago, I really doubted myself or I still doubt myself to this day. So what was kind of going through your mind when you were applying for that position?
1: Oh yeah, and uh, just for the record, I don't know if that ever goes away. Um, so I like to remind students that you're, you might always feel that way, but try and frame it in your brain as a, an opportunity to learn more rather than a time that we constantly self doubt, even though of course we're gonna self doubt. So what was going through my mind? Okay. This now seems silly because I'm in a cognitive science department. In academic ads, often they will have like this list of topics that they, they're looking for. So it's usually topics that people currently in their department don't have expertise in because they wanna like round out the department. So there were a bunch of things, data science education, data visualization, a bunch of things that I thought were a good fits. And then one thing they said they were interested in was video ethnography. And I didn't know what that was. And I had to Google it. And I didn't, like, I didn't know what the word ethnography meant. And I was a graduate student and, like, a smart human being. And I didn't, I just didn't know what this word meant. Um, And so I looked it up. And I was like, oh, I'm actually reading an ethnography at the time. I was reading Matt Desmond's book, Evicted. And I just didn't know what that was. I didn't know that an ethnography was when you kind of embed yourself in a culture or society, a situation, and learn about it over time by embedding yourself. I was reading ethnography. So I looked, I was like, oh, I definitely don't do video ethnography. I didn't even know what it was. And so I decided because of that one little phrase, despite the fact that everything else fit. And despite knowing that we have these like gender disparities where women tend to not apply when they don't fill out all the criteria, right? I know all of this. Even then I was like, well, I shouldn't apply. It's not a good fit for me. But then my mentor was great and he made me apply.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Shout out to your mentor. We always love good mentors. They're the
1: best. Yeah. And Jeff is the best. I had two great mentors, my PhD advisor, Don Arking, and my postdoc advisor, Jeff Leak, and even my undergraduate advisor. I'm still close to him today, Jeremiah Ori. Jeff yells at me in a kind way every time I give him, bring him up and give him credit because like, he's like, you should just take more. Just like stop mentioning me. But here I am.
0: I think having someone who's really passionate about you and your work can make such a difference in the way you do your work, I think. I've definitely noticed that in the past when people are always really excited about what I'm doing. I just feel like I wanna give more back to the community or the work or whatever I'm doing.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's been great to have huge, like, great advocates throughout the way and great mentors. And I've lucked out. Not everybody has great mentors the whole way through.
0: So in talking about this kind of situation of having imposter syndrome and always kind of doubting yourself, now that you're an educator yourself, how does the knowledge that students are going through this kind of affect the way you teach and the way you work?
1: Yeah, so one is to try to acknowledge it, like, and to let students know in these sorts of sort of forms and in the classroom, right? Like, even after I accepted this job, I was right. I was like super excited. That I got the offer, negotiated, get the offer, accept it, and my first thought was like oh no, like now I have to do this job. Like they expect me to do this thing. Like I've never done this before. Like why are they trusting me in this thing I've never done? Um, And of course I had done pieces, right? Like I've done data science for years. I've taught lots of classes. I just hadn't taught as an assistant teaching professor. I hadn't lived in San Diego. I hadn't worked at UCSD. Like there are pieces that I were new. Um, And so I just had to convince myself that I really did know what I was doing, even if it was just like fake it till you make it. So I think being honest with students and letting them know that you don't have to know everything, you're allowed to doubt yourself, but try to accept it as a challenge is important. In the classroom, for example, in my intro to Python class, I try to set the tone day one and remind students that they can learn. I haven't met anybody that can't learn to program, that they don't have to love it. Like There's no rule that you have to love to code. And if you don't take a different path, like it's not everybody's jam. Um, but that you can learn I think is important and reminding students that we constantly overestimate what other people know. Like we constantly think everybody else knows the thing that you don't know and it's just simply not true. Um, I'm going to study this a little bit more over time so I've we've been me and a few other faculty have been talking about ways to study this too to really show students the data and convince them that other people don't know more than they do. Um, and in Cogs One Hundred and Eight, I try to so in data science and practice, Cogs One Hundred and Eight, I try to teach at the end of the course how to get a job, negotiation, communication, um, to just remind students that those are important skills, and they are skills. So we have to practice, and it's okay if you doubt yourself in all of that process. It's not a fun process.
0: Definitely, I think being aware of how students think and telling them those things can really make a difference for professors like you, where you feel like the professor's very much there for you and cares about how you feel and knows that you can learn. There's such an improvement that you see in the students having actually having confidence in themselves, I think.
1: Yeah, and that's that's one of my favorite part of the job. We, I talk about as the like aha moment when students don't know something and then they figure it out or they get there and they have that light bulb moment, that aha moment. And there's certainly less of that while we're learning remotely. And it's something I miss, right? Like I miss now, I don't love when students struggle but having a student struggle and then then working their way through it and then just like seeing it all click when we're in office hours or in the classroom. Like I miss that a ton. And that's a big part of the job that I don't really get now. I'm hoping students are still having them and I'm just not seeing them. Um, But I'm looking forward to when we can be in the classroom again. Definitely
0: seeing all of our beautiful faces every single day.
1: <laughs> yes, I teach, tend to teach early in the morning, so maybe a little bit tired, but beautiful faces.
0: <laughs> now that you work at UCSD, what does your daily work look like? Or, in another way to phrase this question, is what work do you do now?
1: I think this is an, a really great question because, like, I had no idea what professors did all day, um, which seems so silly, but. Um, Philip Guo, actually, he's another professor in the cognitive science department. He has this really, or had this really great blog that I used to read throughout my entire graduate studies before I knew him at all, where he would explain like, okay, here is what the university says you have to do each week. You need to teach. So that's three hours of my week. And you need to have office hours. For me, that's like five hours a week. And that's it, right? Like, that's what they tell you, you need to do. Um, Now, of course... There are meetings like today, I've been going, this is, we're now at 3.30 in the afternoon and I started at 8 a.m. and I've been in Zoom every single minute this entire day. So there's a lot of meetings. So for like an example today, I taught at eight, nine and 10 um, at, 11, I'm now looking at my calendar because I can't even remember. Oh, at 11, I met with a graduate student, not one of my graduate students. I don't have graduate students. Um, Actually, one of Philip Guo's graduate students, he was interviewing me for one of his research papers. 12 to 2 was a two-hour long faculty meeting. Um, So I was like on the faculty meeting trying to pull lunch together so I could like uh, swallow some food and not be hangry. I met with a student from 2 to 2.30 about their future goals, and a research project they're interested in. At 2.30 to 3, I met with a student group um, that's forming that they want to start working on machine learning projects. And now we are chatting. So Monday, Wednesday, and Friday looks a lot like that. It's a lot of teaching. It's a lot of office hours. It's a lot of meetings. I try to leave Tuesdays and Thursdays clear and I block off Thursday afternoons for writing. So right now I'm working on a big grant. So I need hours and hours of time to write these grants. Um, I keep those days uh, meetings free to like limited levels of success. Like I'm looking at my Tuesday schedule and I met with three people on Tuesday and I have two meetings on Thursday. So a lot of meetings, a lot of teaching, a lot of office hours, some writing um, and some research, more research in summer. I
0: definitely think that as an educator or the higher up you get in industry or whatever it is you just have more meetings it just always seems to happen i don't really understand how but that's definitely always been the case that i've seen
1: yeah and i really try to not have that many and it's it's tough
0: so you're saying you're working on grants and stuff is that for education research or something in a specific domain
1: so the grant I'm working on right now, and most of the grants I've been working on since I've gotten here um, have been education focused. So like this one is proposing a cross-institution um, data science education curriculum, which would uh, give, its, it would be money for students to do undergraduate research projects to mentor those students. It would be to like fund hackathons for students. It would be to bring in more professional development stuff for students. And it would be across multiple institutions. So. It's not even education research as much as funding to support students.
0: Funding to support students who want to do research?
1: Students who want to do research or independent projects, we're going to have industry partners as part of the proposal, so it doesn't necessarily even have to be academic research, but it could be, Um, but to really support students who want to do independent projects and who want to be involved in data science curriculum, so to like fund other little projects like hackathons or datathons or Um, if they wanna bring in an outside speaker, those sorts of things.
0: Very exciting, super fun. Hopefully you get the grant. Uh, Besides that, what kind of education research do you do now or what's your main focus?
1: That's a tough one. So it's very much still getting off of the ground. Um, And the thing I'm most interested in is understanding what students actually learn in my classes. I don't really know that. Like over time, if five years after, what is it my students know or remember and how do they use that? What do they find the most helpful? So those sorts of questions are things I would like to know and like what students actually learn. To get there, um, you know, you can't do that in a day. The one thing right now that I'm working on um, with an undergraduate student who is stellar. So he has been analyzing all of the former projects from COGS 108 Data Science and Practice, seeing what students do, seeing how many lines of code they write, how many functions, how is it organized, how how long is the text that they write, what topics do they study, um, how could it be improved and using student feedback and their process. So like if students commit regularly throughout the quarter to GitHub and if they're like making regular progress, is their project stronger at the end and how do we measure strength of projects? So really trying to understand what students currently do to figure out how we can improve the process in the future. So doing sorts of projects like that um, has been my main focus recently. I've definitely
0: seen that when I was taking the class in terms of the surveys, I could definitely see how those would be used in analysis later. I think that came with taking a class on data analysis. You can really understand what questions will get you the answers that you're looking for or maybe not the right ones, but you know just information. So I can definitely see how it would be really helpful those surveys.
1: Yeah, and so it's the surveys combined with like you know, when I was back in the classroom, um, clicker questions and seeing one other thing is how can I identify a struggling student early on? How? You know, because lots of people do badly on the first assignment and do great in the class. So I can't just say, oh, if you don't do well on the first assignment, you're host. because that's just simply not true. But is there a way I could identify in my courses which students are struggling earlier on? So, and like, what would be good interventions to help support them? Is it just an email to let them know that like I'm here? Because that's a really easy intervention. I can do that super simply, but I wouldn't want that to have the reverse effect, right? Like I wouldn't want them to feel like my eyes are then on them when they're just having a bad week. Um, so those sorts of trying to figure out what are indicators that a student is struggling. Um, especially when I do teach such large classes, that's something that's like on my mind a lot.
0: So from that information that you found from the surveys or from talking to students that you use for kind of interventions or whatever, what changes have you been able to make to your classes or the ways you teach even
1: small ones? The one thing this this one is I it's outside of the like content of the class. Um, And I don't have good evidence. I do a pre-course survey every quarter. And I I have 800 students most quarters, and I typically, with a few exceptions, Answer every single student who responds and just like some a little bit to let them know that I read it and that I have some idea about them. So I ask them open-ended questions about what their hobbies are or what they want to do in the future, who they want to be, or you know, any questions they have about the course. And I'm sure I just try to respond to everybody. And so many students have brought that up to me and that that like let them know that I care because I do. And I think it's difficult to convey that to hundreds of students, whether we're in the classroom or on Zoom. Um, and that, that little change, I think, has just let students know and I've gotten better responses from students saying like, hey, you really do care. So I feel then comfortable when I'm struggling to tell you or I feel like I can let you know when something's going on in my life and I need an extension. And so that tiny change in that I, I used, I always have done the surveys, but I didn't always respond to everybody. Um, that has made, uh, I think, a big difference.
0: That's really interesting because I think it would be a good one to analyze maybe how having that kind of relationship with your professor, even though not direct, being able to see that they care about you, what kind of effect that has on the way they learn. I definitely think that's something that you kind of just brought up.
1: And that's certainly something we could study across courses. This is one thing, this is another, I know we're going down the research rabbit hole. Um, uh, there, There are a handful of introduction to programming courses on campus, one of which I teach and that's COGS 18. Um, CSE 8A, CSE 11, and there's one in biology. And one thing that's interesting to me is that students perceive COGS 18 as easier than CSE 8A. And uh, up until recently, I was like, oh, you know, it's probably just an easier course. The professors of that course and I just recently shared our exams and like across and like with one another to like see what the differences or are the overlaps and like we both hands down immediately we're like oh the COGS-18 exams are way harder and so now I'm like well why why do students have this perception that COGS-18 is easier and maybe it's because I you know the points are different and there's less pressure they and, and so like that is constantly in my mind now I'm like is it easier why do students perceive it as easier and like we're starting to develop ways in which we can answer that question
0: Super interesting. Hopefully one day we can answer all these questions, but I feel like it, it's always going to be something to be explored. I think it's very exciting.
1: And that's, there's way more data that I have on my hands than I can actually analyze, um, or that I could like mentor students to do. So I am, I, I love that aspect of this job. There's always a lot, of, a lot more questions than answers. <laughs> I
0: think one thing that you did mention while we were um, taking the class is your data set. If it's something that you think you can pull out a lot of stuff out of, then I think you should really go for it. And I think not being limited by your data set is always a good start. So
1: definitely. Yeah. And I have, yeah, lots and lots of student data. Um, now there's always concerns there. Like, and also we talked about this in class with ethics and making sure that I have um, approval. So like, for example, I didn't get informed consent in the class for a lot of these. So a lot of it's just exploration and I, you know, I can look through those data and use them to then inform the experiments that I'm going to do down the line where I've just been kind of gathering and figuring out what questions to ask and how to ask them and what data I need. Um, so students will always know if they're being experimented on. Um, I just, I just haven't done that yet. Which is
0: always very important. We always support privacy and ethics one of the most important things. So obviously we are in a COVID world because I am doing this podcast over Zoom, but how has that changed the way you teach and what changes have you made to your classes to kind of accommodate for the situation?
1: Oh man, okay. It's changed a lot. Um, So I can't see my students when I'm teaching. I used to know when to slow down. I used to know when to speed up. I used to know when students were bored. And now I stare at a black screen mostly because- Um, I have so many students. So even if students had their cameras on, I wouldn't be able to see them. There's only so much real estate. So that's been the biggest change on my end. It's harder to know what pace to go with. Um, The other change is a positive. The chat on Zoom has been a big positive. Students ask way more questions in my classes now, because obviously it's way less scary to type something in a chat than to like raise your hand amongst 300 of your peers. Um, So that has been a positive. Then I'm going to try to incorporate post-COVID, whenever that is, into the classroom to make sure that students are able to feel comfortable asking questions because it's scary to ask questions um, and raise your hand amongst hundreds and hundreds of your peers. So that's the like classroom stuff. Um, Course design-wise... I was teaching COGS 108 asynchronously in the spring and the fall. I'm now teaching synchronously again. So I was making short mini videos. And then I was administering a bajillion quizzes on Canvas. Um, And I found myself spending almost as much time as I would lecturing, like moving videos around and keeping track of links. And I was like, if I'm spending this much time tracking videos and keeping them up to date, like I might as well just teach because I enjoy that. And I don't enjoy managing links. So, um, so I've changed that. I last two quarters in COGS 108, I gave an individual project in addition to a group project, which was a ton to manage and a ton of to grade. Um, I stopped awarding any and all credit or incentivizing attendance at any point in time because 10% of my students are in time zones that would not be a reasonable time zone to attend class. I want my students to sleep when it is dark out and I want them to get their sleep. So I used to incentivize attendance. And now I would never punish students who didn't show up but I would incentivize it so that they could get some credit in some way or another. So I stopped doing that. So I changed a lot of policies, changed how I administer exams, changed the uh, way in which I administer lectures, um, use the chat, which is great. Just trying to make it work for everybody. The chat is one that I've noticed as well. I think it's
0: interesting that before COVID, everyone knew that people didn't really ask that many questions in lecture, like it's it's something everyone's kind of aware of, but I think It was so interesting to see that spike in the amount of people who would ask questions and feel open and not judged for asking questions. So I definitely think that's something that maybe COVID has taught us to kind of incorporate in lectures after this.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to find the silver lining. So we'll count that as a silver lining.
0: <laughs> we were trying so hard. Maybe, maybe there's one on one cloud somewhere, but maybe that <laughs> was it. You were talking about your mentors earlier that you had through your undergrad and your PhD and your postdoc. So how did you grow that network of finding those mentors and even people after um, those three steps in your life?
1: Yeah, so the first, my first mentor that I mentioned, my undergrad Jeremiah Ori. He, this one I I can take no credit for. I was a freshman at a very small college, and because I had taken AP Bio, I was in a genetics class. So I was in like what would normally be a second year class, but I was taking my first semester um, of undergrad, and in that I was in lab, and I'm in like the lab class, and I mentioned to somebody. I don't even remember who, that I wanted to do research at some point that I thought I would like research. And my professor of that course was Dr. Jeremiah Ori, and he emailed me after and was like, hey, I heard you saying you wanted to do research, which is not, it would like never happen at UC San Diego. So it just like is mind blowing, I know to my students. Um, And so I started doing research with him my first year, first semester at college and continued to do that with him for four years. And so from like, he was really my entrance. He then suggested I do a summer research program. He suggested an REU, I had never heard of it. I didn't know what that was. So I applied to that. I met another mentor there who I don't chat with as much anymore, but we're still in touch. Um, He'll send me adorable pictures of his daughter from time to time. So that was a summer. He mentioned to me that he had gone to Hopkins for grad school and that he loved it. And I had heard nothing but horror stories about Hopkins and so I had no intention of going to Hopkins, but I applied because he had gone there and he encouraged me to do so. So then I got to Hopkins and I met my mentor Don and then Don at, told me I should have Jeff Leak on my thesis committee. So that's how I met my postdoc advisor. So like all of that was serendipitous and not really effort by me. What changed I think would be in my postdoc, my postdoc advisor Jeff was like, hey, why aren't you on Twitter? And I was like, Jeff, I just, I'm not good at social media. It's not my thing. And he was like, you need to be on Twitter because tons of data science, biostats, stats, stats, like use Twitter professionally. And so I did. And from there, a lot of the jobs I applied to, a lot of the people I met, um, a lot of the people I know within the R and Python community, I know from Twitter. And so that really grew my network and gave me people to outreach. For an example, when we went remote last spring, within a week, I needed to find guest lecturers for COGS 108 because we weren't going to be in person. And so I tweeted out um, like, hey, I know everybody, anyway, I mean, this was super stressful. Everybody's converting to remote. I was like, hey, it's a big ask. Would anybody be willing to, you know, I don't want to outreach and ask anybody because I know it's a tough time. Would anybody be willing to be a guest lecturer in my class? And two people responded immediately. So I like DM them right away. And then I closed out Twitter because I told you I'm not good at social media. And the next day I came back and I had 75 responses. And like, so that's the community. I didn't know a lot of these people. And that's the list I've been using for guest lecturers since then um, because I had all these amazing people reach out um, and offer to be guest lecturers. So like, that's where my network really started to build.
0: I think I've heard from Nima actually. Um, For those who don't know, one of the professors in the CS department, that academic Twitter is gold, so I, I went on it recently just to see and it's really interesting people talk about new things that they've been discovering what they're learning, sharing really interesting conversations with other people in the community about new innovations and I think that's just so exciting.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I, there, there are positives and negatives. And I think for academic Twitter, the positives definitely outweigh the negatives. Um, Nima is much better at Twitter than I am, but I, I do try to keep up and, you know, people post jobs there, people share contacts and you can build your network and whatever your interest and direction is. Mine used to be much more genetics heavy and now it's much more data science heavy and it certainly shifts over time.
0: Maybe this will inspire some people to make a professional Twitter and follow some interesting folks. Hopefully. So now that you're here and your journey has changed and evolved so much over the last, I don't even know how many years, many, many, many in learning and technology, what would you say has been your biggest accomplishment out of all of those? You can pick more than one if there's, you know, multiple.
1: <laughs> um. It's. It's. It's tough, I think, to pick a biggest accomplishment, not because I've done that much, but because I do feel very lucky and fortunate on the path that I've gotten to be on. But I would say my biggest accomplishment would be getting the job at UC San Diego. It was a really good fit. Um, I'm happy. I really enjoy my students. We enjoy living in San Diego. Um, So it wound up being a good fit. So I would say probably that would be the biggest.
0: There's so many students that get to learn from you, and I'm sure that's very exciting knowing that you're impacting the lives of other
1: people. That's the hope. I hope that's the case. (laughs) (laughs)
0: So on kind of like the flip side, what would you say has been a failure that you faced over the last however many years and something that you really learned from it that helped you grow in this industry?
1: Oh man, scientists fail all the time. Um, It's constant failure. So I guess we'll just like list off a bunch because I really like to normalize failure. So I've had, you know, I, we, so far we've talked about all the like successful things, right? Like I got this job, I get to do what I want. I had all these great mentors, but I didn't get into the undergraduate institution that I wanted to go to college. So I got rejected from college. In fact, I got rejected or I got waitlisted at my safety school. So that was, I was like, oh man, um, you know, it worked out. I went to Not It was not a great academic institution, but I had a full ride, so I had no debt. Um, So that was like the positive. Um, Okay, so didn't get into the undergraduate institution I wanted. I initially thought I wanted to be MD, PhD. So I I thought I would be a good clinician. I really like people. Um, But then I bombed the MCAT, the test, to get into medical school. So that, I wound up getting into one medical program, um, ended up going to Hopkins instead. So failed at the undergrad, failed at getting into where I thought I wanted to go. Also for graduate school, I really thought I wanted to go to Chicago. I had this like idea that I belonged in Chicago and I didn't get a single interview to like the five programs I applied to in Chicago. So failure there. In grad school, I wrote two grants, didn't get either of those. Postdoc, I wrote this big, it's called a K99R00 grant and (laughs) the... The, the responses I got were somewhat comical in that this, it's supposed to be this like training grant as you transition from a postdoc to a professor position and you assemble this like team of mentors. And basically the feedback I got was like, the team of mentors is incredible. There are all these amazing scientists, but the person who wrote this grant is a nobody. Like, who, like and so I was reading, I was like, it's supposed to be a training grant. And then I got two other comments on that that said, There's no way she wrote this. This is supposed to be like her writing. And then there was another one that said, she clearly didn't get any feedback from her mentor. She was supposed to like, they clearly didn't look this over. I was like, it can't be both. Clearly that got rejected. Um, So basically there's like, and then I'm leaving out all of the like experiments that failed, all of the papers I submitted that got rejected. And then I had to like resubmit or re put elsewhere. And so like really failures all along the way and you just kind of have to normalize it and know that rejection's normal. Um, And I'm leaving out a ton of rejections and failures in there.
0: I feel like people see, like I was saying earlier, people see people who are professors or people in industry and you're like, their life has been perfect. They're doing this amazing thing now. They're sitting here teaching this class and they're so smart and they know all this stuff and you just never, ever see all the stuff that they went through to get here. Like I could be smiling here one day and yesterday, like every paper I wrote got rejected.
1: Yeah, and I so I think it is important to one, talk about them and two, normalize it and know that, you know, Especially when you have these sorts of conversations, you tend to talk about the the like good things and the path that got you there, and we leave out the bad things. Um, and the other thing is I, I like I, I guess I like to point this out that like if people are listening to this on my path, I was someone who was like set up for success the whole way. I give like so much credit to first-gen students who like didn't have somebody to pave the way and tell them how the system works and were able to figure out the system or students who came from any sort uh, source of like scarcity or food insecurity or, you know, unstable housing. Like I had a really easy childhood. I didn't come from tons of money, but we had enough. My parents both graduated college. My mom is an attorney. Like it was you know, I, of course I struggled. I had bad days, ups and downs, but like, it really was a path set up for me to succeed. And so like, if you weren't set up on that path and you're still making it through UC San Diego, like even more credit to all of those students, because it's amazing.
0: All of the first gen students, I know so many people who have had it hard, not just first gen, but just as an example, it's so, so impressive to see everyone just be able to thrive. And I wish people would I wish it was easier for people to just understand their successes and just be able to look back and be like, look, these things were hard, but I'm doing really, really great. So I think that's a really great point that you mentioned that.
1: Thanks. Yeah. And if they're struggling, they're struggling and hopefully you're able to get the support and know that like you are allowed to ask questions. Even if you think you sound dumb, other people are asking those dumb questions. So you get to ask those dumb questions too.
0: Oh man, asking questions, that's just, that's just a topic I could talk about for like two to three hours, but (laughs) I think that (laughs) asking questions is something that I've really learned at my internships. They, people want you to ask questions, especially when they're good ones. I think as a tutor, I've seen that myself. It's, you just really are so excited when people want to learn. So everyone should ask questions. I totally agree. For people who are starting out their journey in tech, whether that be you know straight out of high school or they found it in the middle of college or they're in their graduate and they're like, you know what, I wanna learn computer science now. What is the advice that you would give them?
1: Mm, it's a good one. The first piece of advice that comes to mind is learn good habits from the start. And that's probably just, you know people like to give advice from their own journey and I learned bad habits to start and they're hard to break. So, you know, one, learn however you can learn. So if that involves looking at tutorials and kind of piecing things together from the internet, that's fine if that's your path, but get a solid foundation, Um, learn the tools that other people are using out in the world. Um, So get a sense of what's being used at your favorite company or your favorite nonprofit, um, and start learning those and learning them well, learning them deeply and learning them correctly. and the second piece would be, know that you don't need to know everything. At no point will anybody expect you to know everything. And you get to ask questions when that happens and you don't know stuff um, and try. If there's something you're excited about, set yourself up for success, learn what you need to know and give it your best shot. Apply even if you don't think you are fully qualified. You're never gonna feel fully qualified.
0: Like you mentioned earlier with, if you didn't apply to UCSD, you just wouldn't be here. So you never know until they reject you, I guess.
1: Yeah. And in rejection, you're at the same spot you were when, before you applied. So nothing lost.
0: (laughs) Nothing lost. Um, so now that you're doing education research, you're teaching at UCSD, where do you see your work and you going over the next few years?
1: I should have, and I intend to this summer, get a clearer plan. Although I said that last summer too. exactly what questions I want to answer with my education research. Um, but I anticipate doing more directed like experimental research with regards to education. Right now I've been doing a lot of information gathering, understanding my students, understanding how they're learning in my classes, what they're doing. Um, and now I wanna see how to improve that. So um, I, I never intend to ever do a case control within a class because I don't think that's fair, right? Like if I think something's gonna help students, I should just do that for all students. Um, but I can compare, does this approach X, X one quarter or this approach why another quarter work better for the outcome um, and compare those because they could both work equally well um, and help that drive the decisions I make. Um, So it's mostly with regards to how my classes are designed and how to best teach my students so that they come out of the classes with as much um, learning and experience and confidence as possible. Um, So that's mainly what I see is it becoming more experimental.
0: Definitely hope you get to make a good plan over summer and put it all into action. But I definitely see, again, how that can make an impact on the way students learn, for sure.
1: Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited. It's, you know, my main goal is to teach and continue to teach. So my second goal would be to get the research going more. Um, But the other part that I left out is like, I I plan to continue to teach and teach some new courses and enjoy that. As always.
0: So just wrapping it up, this is a question I kind of ask everybody. So what advice would you have given yourself when you were just starting out that you wish you knew?
1: This one's going to sound silly. I wish I had learned Python first and not Perl. Um, I I don't even think I could write a single line of Perl code at this point, but it, it it just would have served me a lot better. Early on, and the reason I learned Pearl first was because the postdoc in the lab, she knew Python and she was seven months pregnant. So I knew she was about to leave and be on maternity leave. And my advisor knew Pearl. So I was like, well, he's going to be around and I'm going to need to ask some questions. So I learned Pearl. So that's a like very specific, silly thing on tech. But the, I think the larger um, lesson there is pick the tools that are actually being used and that will be most beneficial. And that doesn't mean there's one right tool. like. In bioinformatics, R is used much more heavily than Python. In neuroscience research, Python is used more heavily. So it doesn't mean that just because your friend is learning one thing, that's what you should learn. Figure out what path you think you're most excited about, and this is what I would have told myself, and learn that. So I wish I had learned either R or Python first, because I spent a lot of time writing some really bad Perl code, and I don't think it's necessarily served me.
0: That's really good advice, especially now over the years. There's just so many options for what you can learn. And... For example, React might not be your answer, but if you want to build something that maybe React would be useful for, then React is your answer. So definitely and a it, really good point.
1: Yeah, and it's going to change over time, right? Like I yeah. wouldn't be shocked if fifteen years from now I'm not teaching Python. Oh, so. yeah. Who knows? Uh, it's I, going to change.
0: I can I, can't, I couldn't even imagine. Like what? What is it now? Twenty twenty-one. Like let's say two thousand five. They did not see where we were going to be right now. So I'm sure in another 15 years, everything will change again and we'll have to learn new things, but that's just always part of the process.
1: Yeah. And I think that's part of the fun. You know, I like that I get to incorporate new things into my classes and that things are changing um, and that they'll continue to change.
0: Well, very exciting. I think that about wraps it up. It was great talking to you. Thank you for being on the podcast.
1: This was super fun. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to just get to chat for a while.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for listening and stay tuned for next time. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Shannon and took some bits away about what it's like being a professor and educator at a large university like UCSD. And really what you can do with computer science and data science, applying it to other fields like education and biology and so much more. So thank you all for joining me and I'll talk to you soon.